Ezra chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the capital, that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatsanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Bauzani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. I bet they did. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
Amen. Need this now. Uh, this past Wednesday night was one of the most dreaded nights of the year for me, back to school night. And um, we went to our homeschool co-op and did a dry run through the classes. And even before we left the house, uh, as I knew we had to get out the door, I looked at Georgia and I put down my computer and I said, I despise this. Now, I don't actually despise our co-op. Uh, there's great people there, but I do hate preparing for school at least as much as the kids do, possibly more. And the worst thing is that I'm nearly 40 and I'm not a real teacher, so I feel like I shouldn't have to be stressed about school anymore. Like, I thought this was over years ago. Like, you're supposed to get past this, but this is what homeschooling does to us. It just prolongs the agony throughout our years. But it was a great night uh, for several reasons. Uh, they had in instituted some new rules that was good. I'm allowed to wear my hat now without being bothered, and that's kind of cool. Um, and uh, it's a good group of kids. Um, but most importantly, and just to show you how little attention we pay, and, and we don't, I mean, we get daily emails from the co-op, and we can't possibly read them all. That's just like, I don't have time for that. Um, but I discovered that night uh, that this class that George and I are co-teaching doesn't start till February. I should have known that, but I didn't. And uh, so when she told me this, like, talk about a change in attitude. Like, now I could be pleasant, and I brightened considerably. Like, I just got a six-month extension, you know? I went into this thing with dread, and suddenly everything changed. Like, my entire outlook on life has improved. Food tasted better, like everything. <laughs> because I had legitimate joy because the threat had passed over me. Today's story is a Passover story, and it is about God's mercy and the joy that comes with the threat passing over. We left off last week on a, a note of some uncertainty. Uh, the Jews had been confronted by the local governors about this building project, uh, and Zerubbabel and the elders had shown some real backbone, and we thought this was admirable, right? They insisted, like, no, we're going to keep on building. You ask the king about it, and we're just going to keep going for now. Uh, and, like, oh, man, the chutzpah to do that. It was like, that's really cool. But it was also kind of like that famous, like, Band of Brothers speech in Henry V. Like, that's also, like, that really is invigorating if you've ever seen the movie or the play. Like, everyone loves a bold speech. But you forget that the same guys who are cheering in that speech are also fairly convinced they're going to die today. You know, uh, they're inwardly bracing for the bloody battle. You know, they don't know that things are going to work out okay. Uh, and my guess is that the Jews in chapter 5 were probably doing the same thing. Uh, they basically told these governors, they're like, well, we're not going to comply. We're going to keep on building. And, and then they put their fate in the hands of the king. Uh, and so last week we saw Tatanai's letter to the king. And now we get to the king's response, and it's actually a rather surprising response because Darius is not only fair, he goes above and beyond. Uh, and the news is so shockingly good when it comes down that it changes the entire mood of the book, even more than my mood changed on Wednesday night. Tat and I had said in chapter 5 that he said to the king, like, if it pleases the king, could you check the records and see what Zerubbabel and these Jewish elders, see if they said what they're saying is true? Uh, is there a building permit somewhere? 
And I want you to consider that it's not entirely unlikely that this would not please Darius at all and that he wouldn't bother. Uh, he could have simply said, like, who cares what the record says? You know, like, Cyrus is dead. It's no concern of mine. And this would have a certain logic. Because as I said last week, Darius had seized the throne by force. And I want to give you a little historical background because it's something, you know, surely everybody that was originally reading this knew all of this. But uh, when Darius seized the throne, he was one of seven co-conspirators. And they had executed the previous king. And the, the reasoning behind this was that while well, the previous king, he was supposed to be Cyrus's son, uh, but Darius and these conspirators claimed, no, he's a lookalike and a usurper. Uh, actually, um, it, it turns out the, uh, the actual king was murdered by his brother a, a long time ago, and this is just some lookalike that they put on the throne. Uh, uh, to, okay, for the record, every historian believes this to be a sham. Uh, Darius and his buddies basically stole the throne. Darius was chosen among them to be the king, and real quick he fabricated a common ancestor so that he could claim to be part of the Cyrus family tree. Like, well, you know, if you go back enough generations, we're actually distant cousins. He's a smooth operator, Darius. And as I said before, that means he had to watch his back. Uh, many people tend to challenge the new king that seized the throne, and they did in Darius's case. They challenged him frequently early on. The first year of his kingship featured in, uh, one of the guys who helped get him on the throne, one of the seven co-conspirators, uh, gave him a hard time. He ended up executing him along with his entire family. Uh, another region that had supported Darius from the start, even when he was uh, leading this revolt, uh, they revolted against him a short while later. Uh, eventually, Darius's home country of Persis rebelled against him. There were rebellions all over the place. He spent a year bloodily putting down rebellions. So you would not expect Darius to be sympathetic to any kind of troublemaking out on the provinces, including in Jerusalem. However, Darius sends a few clerks down to the archives and says, yeah, look into the matter. Every nation has archives. Uh, ours has been in the news more than usual of late because we have too many politicians with sticky fingers, I guess. But um, even our church has archives of a sort. Uh, down in the office, we have old session records and receipts and things like that. I've spent a lot of time going through those things, organizing, filing, throwing out duplicates and things that weren't important, that kind of thing. I have learned that records are not always complete or perfect or easy to find. So the mere fact that Darius sends a few clerks to dig in the paperwork from 40 years ago is not a guarantee that they'll find it, even if it does exist. Uh, I mean, I can tell you this. This church started 40 years ago, roughly. You know which records are the least complete and accurate? The ones from 40 years ago. We have no minutes for the Bible study that started in 1980. Uh, there are a few offering slips, and there is a receipt for the piano. That's what we have from 1980. So even with relatively modern record-keeping, things get lost. So this is kind of a shot in the dark in some respects, because there's also been, obviously, regime change. A lot of things get topsy-turvy. But they find a record, and it is duly reported verbatim in verse 3 to 5. And we presume this is authentic, because in the original text of Ezra and Nehemiah, all of these official decrees that are uh, recorded here are written out in Aramaic, which is the language of Persia. They're not written in Hebrew. Uh, so the record is found, 
and Zerubbabel and the other leaders are vindicated. Uh, and it, it's nice to have the facts on your side when these things happen. Um, I think that Tatanai was wagering that the Jews were bluffing, but uh, he was proved wrong. Uh, it's always hard to accept you were wrong when you bet big. Anyone who has placed a wager with Pat here knows that. Um, but the thing is, even with that, Darius could just bury this thing. He doesn't have to publicize it. And in fact, as the king, he could just revoke Cyrus's permission if he thought that this was a problem. And you kind of expect that he would, but he doesn't. Instead, he sides with the Jews, with God's people, and more than that, he goes way above and beyond what Cyrus ordered. And we find Darius's new order, beginning in verse 6, says, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozanai, and your associates, the governors, who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of, the, of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. So once again, this is already like wonderful news if we just stopped right there in verse 7. Uh, I said last week that for many of us, our goal in life is, especially when we're working, is simply to be left alone. And that's what Darius commands. That's the, the relevant commands there. Keep away, let them alone, let them build. Those are the commands in those two verses. Darius is using a machete to cut through the red tape. Cake reference. No, I, like many of you know that I, I make a lot of these references to 60s music. I, I extend beyond that. Sometimes I get as far as 2001, right? Never mind. But 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, that's basically all that God's people are asking for. They want to be left alone. But God has a way of blessing beyond our expectations, doesn't he? He has a way of blessing us beyond what we ask for. And so in that vein, Darius adds his own decree on top of what Cyrus had already said in verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Now that's amazing. Uh, Darius is determined to make, it sounds to me, like the back payments that Cyrus had promised. Uh, Cyrus said that the empire would fund this, and so we will. And as an added slap in the face to Tantani, he specifies that the money should be paid out of his own budget. He says to pay them out of the tribute of the province beyond the river. Uh, in American politics, we might call this an unfunded mandate. He's basically telling the state to cover the cost. And don't misunderstand, I mean, it's all royal money, technically it's all Persian funds, but he's undercutting Tatanai's budget. Like, take it out of the money that you're collecting, not mine. And it's not just money, is it? Verse 9, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. So don't just write them a check and walk away. I want you to supply them with any and all necessary animals for the sacrifices. You will make daily deliveries if necessary. And not just the meat either. The wheat, the salt, the wine, the oil, the good stuff of life. All the things that make worship and feasting happen. It's amazing what you can accomplish with meat and wheat and salt and wine and oil. That's a, that's a comprehensive shopping list in my world. 
And now it's going to come by DoorDash every day and at government expense. So that's a shocking turn of events. I don't think the Jews could possibly have expected such a favorable response. And again, it doesn't seem characteristic for a king who just spent the last year squashing rebellions, does it? This could have gone very badly when they made this move. Like, why would Darius do such a thing? Well, verse 10 tells us, he says, so that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Darius is a shrewd man. He wants the temple rebuilt primarily so that the Jews will pray for him and his sons. This is a strange thing in a way to ask for the blessing of a God that you don't believe in, but as I've said before, people do this all the time. Very few people will turn down prayer when it's offered. And while this might seem purely mercenary, I don't think God minds it. And I say that because the New Testament tells us the same thing, doesn't it? Paul tells us to pray for our government, not because they're believers or because they're awesome at their job. He tells us to pray for them so that we may live quiet lives and so that they might be saved. First Timothy says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, I mean, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but if we want peaceful, quiet lives, if we want to be left alone, and if we want to be godly, and dignified, if we want to see our leaders saved by the same gospel that we received, then we must pray for our leaders. Paul wrote that when Nero was on the throne. Not exactly a godly example, uh, but the same was true of Darius, the usurper. And so the fact that Darius asks for prayer is not something God's people should shrug off just because he's not a true believer, he's not one of them, and even though he is arguably not legitimate, God's people owe it to their governing officials to pray for them. And that is worth remembering in an age where respect for our politicians is understandably at a low ebb. You must pray for the president, regardless of his party, not because he's a great guy, but because it's your duty and God expects you to. Same goes for the governor the mayor, judges, dog catchers, and all the incompetent bureaucrats in between. So Darius, whether he knows it or not, is only echoing God's will by this request. And it suddenly, it it kind of makes sense in a way, because if Darius sees the throne, and he had the fight to keep it for the last year, then no wonder he's concerned about his sons. I would be. This is about his dynasty. He's thinking about the long-term future of his royal house. Darius is actually appealing to the God of heaven to establish his family on the throne that he almost certainly stole. And to show just how seriously he means it, in verse 11, also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Well, that seems clear enough. 
you got to love when the king specifies like the exact method of execution he would like used in this particular instance. I don't know how many of you kids know what impaling means. Jacob, are you familiar with impaling? That's probably for the best. It's not for the If I had to have a top ten list of ways to go, this wouldn't be on there. Um, If you can imagine being a human corn dog, I'll just leave it at that. Um, The fair's in town. It's on the mind. Um, This is a method of death not only very painful, it is also humiliating. You would be probably naked when this happened. Um, So if you mess with this order or fail to keep it, not only will you die a horrible excruciatingly painful death. Uh, I will make an example of you, and after you're dead, even your actual house will be disgraced, your physical house. We will literally fill it with crap to insult you in your grave so that everyone will remember what I did to you. That is the, that is the you know, uh, John Smith Memorial outhouse now. Like, that's what we're going to do with you. But Darius actually makes a direct appeal to God Our God, in verse 12, he says, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. I'm not going to make an argument that this is an indication of saving faith on Darius's part, but I do wonder if maybe Darius has developed some of that healthy fear of the Lord that we've been talking about. Um, He respects that this God of Jerusalem has some clout and he wants to be on his good side. And that's not a bad instinct, you know. And he rightly covets this God's protection and blessing. And how does Tatanai respond? According to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, etc., did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Of course they did. And, uh, and they finished the job, the Jews do. It says, The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So, Here you are, four years after God sent his prophets to stir the hearts of his people, and now the temple is done. And a couple verses came to mind. I think of how Proverbs 21, verse 1, tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. But also, Ecclesiastes 2, 26, it's one of George's favorites, says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. And God surely has turned the heart of Darius toward his people, and Tatanai has been given the business of gathering so that he could give it over to God's people. And it's so crazy that the empire is actually underwriting 
the sacrifices at this point. They are sponsoring the worship itself. Thomas Jefferson would be very disappointed in this situation. This is not a good example of church-state separation, but such is God's mercy to his people that even the pagan king is on their side. And a question lingered to me, did God's people actually do what they were asked to do? Did they pray for Darius? And it doesn't actually say that here, but I kind of suspect that they did. And if you do a little digging, you learn that this empire lasted for another about 190 years after this point, and Darius's descendants ruled throughout that time. Uh, and sometimes there was palace intrigue at one point, like, you know, the, some eunuch was kind of running things, and some of the sons were illegitimate that ended up on the throne, but they were his, you know, sons and sires. And so in a very real sense... Uh, this throne was established and made somewhat secure. So God even blesses an unbeliever like Darius in the process of blessing his people. And obviously, look, the story isn't over. There are going to be other ups and downs, but this is definitely like the highlight of Ezra so far. The the, the long-awaited temple is finally finished, and and they do it in four years, uh, starting with uh, when Haggai showed up. And it took Solomon seven years to build it from the ground up. So um, in a grand ceremony here with, with great fanfare and with hundreds of animals sacrificed, sin offerings and everything else that you notice in verse 17, the temple is finally dedicated. And two things are given credit for the successful completion of the temple in verse 14. And they're related things. Uh, it's the preaching of Zechariah and Haggai and the decree of God. Uh, he mentions the decrees of those three emperors, but those are mentioned after the decree of God because they're subordinate to God's decree. But what I want you to see is that God's word is the primary active ingredient in revival. There is no restoration here apart from the word of God. Revival comes in the context of God's word decreed and preached meaning that revival is his work from beginning to end. Even the decrees of the emperors are his doing. And of course, this has been true of every revival in history. It's equally true today. There's no revival that is not anchored in the preaching and hearing of God's word. It's not something we can do on our own. Without his word, nothing happens. But fueled by God's word, things do happen. The king's heart is softened. The fortunes of God are uh, God's people are restored, and the response is naturally unmitigated joy. Verse 16 says that they dedicated the temple with joy. And as the chapter closes, the theme of joy continues. And it shows up in something that would have, it's something that should be so basic and routine, but which had a whole new meaning at this point. They sit down and they celebrate the Passover. And I want to look again at that final section, because this is sort of the apex of the whole thing. It says, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all of the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I I want you to bear in mind that this would have been kind of like celebrating Christmas for the first time in 70 years. 
at least celebrating it rightly. I'm sure that they marked Passover even while they were in exile. I'm sure that they did something, but that's not the same, just the way that Christmas is not the same if you throw out every tradition and had to celebrate it on an island somewhere by yourself. It's it's a very common cliche when you watch Christmas TV specials. They'll talk about, you know, keeping Christmas in your heart. That shows up in songs, right? Like, I think we know that's bunk because Christmas is not a feeling in your heart. Uh, it is an actual celebration of the incarnation, of course, God becoming man. But for most of us, it also has a lot of other associations, doesn't it? Uh, sets of traditions and, and rituals. And it's something warm and cozy and familiar, right? It's time with family. It's eating traditional meals and such and going to church and all of that. That's what Passover was like for the Jews. And they had not been able to celebrate it in the traditional proper way for 70 years. The exile had disrupted every family tradition. They become distant memories at this point, And it's hard to fathom the emotion of the moment, the first proper Passover in seven decades. And no one could have foreseen this when Taz and I first showed his face in Jerusalem four years ago. Only God can make this happen. And it's fitting that this Passover is recorded and that it comes here at the end of this chapter here because it so clearly echoes this whole story. This whole chapter echoes the first Passover. God had passed over and had mercy on his undeserving people. And God's enemies had been silenced and his people are now free to go and worship him. And just like the Egyptians gave gold to the Israelites as they were fleeing in the Exodus, yet again, God's enemies have been forced to finance this project, this restoration. They are given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to those who please God. But I wanted you to notice one more thing that particularly struck me when I was reading this passage this week. Because at the dedication of the temple, you had these massive sacrifices that took place, right? Hundreds of animals were sacrificed on that day. It's a church barbecue for the ages, right? My cheesesteaks at the picnic have nothing on this. But when it comes to the Passover, a few months later, only one lamb gets mentioned. That's funny because the Passover typically involved many lambs, one for each household. If you read records of the way Passover was celebrated in Jesus' day, I mean, it's thousands, thousands of lambs. And I guess it's possible that they could be using the singular as a stand-in for all the lambs. Seems unlikely since they gave us a very specific number just a few verses before. I don't think this is a typo. And I don't think God's word makes mistakes. This is preserved here to not only point back to the first Passover, but to point forward to the fulfillment in Christ. Because it's such a point of contrast after the mass slaughter of animals at the temple dedication, it's as if to say that only one lamb is necessary to cover everybody, the priests, the Levites, the exiles. And notice also that it's not just the exiles who celebrate. Verse 21 tells us that everyone who separated themselves from the people of the land took part. And that means that some of the same neighbors, Samaritans, all kinds of people that are hanging around here, some of these same neighbors who initially didn't even want these refugees here have actually come to fear the Lord. And they have walked away from the world to follow our God. So there's been kingdom growth here in spite of the shortcomings of God's people. 
because we know that God's people have not been diligent in their calling. That was the whole point of Haggai. That's why he wrote, why we have that book. And yet God drew people to them, or rather maybe he drew people to himself in spite of his people. And this is once again good news for people who are bad at evangelism because it's the same miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that we saw at work in Nineveh when Jonah preached. And it's the same work that the Holy Spirit needs to do in Allentown today. The Passover is the ultimate celebration of God's mercy to his people. And so that's why this chapter ends with joy, even though Passover is kind of a somber occasion. It says in verse 22 that God made them joyful. What God's people are rejoicing in here is not the building, and it's not the riches, and it's not the political support, or even patting themselves on the back for a job well done, right? They are rejoicing in the Lord because he had kept his word and done great things for them. And that's why the crowning moment focuses on the Passover lamb. Revival is about God's mercy. It's about his judgment passing over us and his kingdom growing and him restoring us to worship. Now, what does that mean for us today as a church and as followers of Jesus? Well, as a church, we've been talking for a long time about revival and restoration. And maybe another way of putting that is that we want the joy that comes with revival. And I think... If we want revival like what we see here in Ezra's day, uh, it's not going to come by our efforts. It's certainly not going to start in City Hall, much less Harrisburg or Washington, D.C. Revival will only come by God's decree, through God's word, and out of God's abundant mercy. That is the only way this works. So if we want LVPC to grow and if we want this city to know Christ, what we're saying is that we want others to experience the joy that we have experienced. And that doesn't mean that we're always giddy, you know, up, right, down, right, left, right, whatever, uh, happy all the time. Uh, But we as Christians should know what joy looks like. Do we know and do we remember what God has done for us in Christ? He hadn't even done that yet in Ezra's day, and yet the people had joy. God made them joyful. And so the question I would ask is, do you have that joy? And I would say, furthermore, that if you know Christ, you should. We should exude joy that is not rooted in what we are doing, but what God has done, is doing, and will do in Christ. And we remember that those things best when the word and when Jesus, the Passover lamb himself, is central to who we are and what we're doing. The Jews in this chapter are not rejoicing in what they've accomplished. There's not an ounce of pride, and it's kind of surprising because that's not how we mostly think, right? There's not an ounce of pride expressed in this chapter. In spite of the monumental achievement and the fact that they had showed such backbone, instead they're focused on God's mercy and goodness. They focus on the lamb and they are filled with joy. And ultimately, even former unbelievers join the party because the joy of the Lord is infectious. I want us to know that joy. I myself want to know that joy better. And why shouldn't we? 
no joy. God has done great things for us. And we know the rest of the story. We haven't read just the book of Ezra. Uh, We know what he did, what God did on Calvary. We have greater reasons to expect revival and restoration than the people of Ezra's day. Revival is not a man-centered thing. Revival and restoration are, by definition, miraculous. There's no way to explain it apart from God. He's the one who sends prophets. He's the one who moves the hearts of kings. And he's the one whose word has power. And he's the one who provided mercy in Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. No one else can provide mercy but God. We don't have the necessary ingredients for revival. But the one who does gives generously to those who ask. I believe this church will not experience revival apart from God's mercy. No church can. And you, as an individual, will not experience revival apart from God's mercy. There is no mercy without a lamb. So, beloved, if you know Jesus as your Savior, the threat has passed over you. And we know that God is in the restoration business. You have every reason to rejoice. God has made you joyful. And you have every reason to expect revival in your own life and in this church and in this city. That is our hope. So let's pray to that end. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word and for your abundant mercy to your people. Lord, we thank you for these wondrous things that you did for your people in Ezra 6. Lord, to turn the heart of the king (laughs) so abundantly. Lord, these are the things you're capable of. Lord, the threat had passed over your people. How fitting it is that they should celebrate that, Lord. And how fitting that it would point forward to Christ. Lord, those of us who know now what you did accomplish at Calvary, Lord, and who know the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, Lord, we thank you because we have received mercy. Lord, we have seen it. We pray that you would make us joyful, Lord. Lord, why shouldn't we be joyful? Because of the mercy that you have given us, Lord. You have passed over us. We are not under your judgment. We are not under threat. We thank you for that, Lord. There are scarier things than the displeasure of kings, even. So we pray that you would make us joyful, Lord. Focus our eyes on Jesus, our Passover lamb. Give us joy, Lord, that is infectious. And we do pray for revival, Lord, in our lives, in this church, and in this city. We know that you can do it. We pray that you will. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Praise God from whom all Blessings flow